Well, take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Some of you younger ones may not remember this, and depending on your background, you may not either, but back when I was younger, uh, Christians, uh, at least in my circle, didn't play pool. Uh, my father grew up uh, in a, kind of a rough background at the pool halls, getting in fights and getting drunk, and he wouldn't let us even touch a, a, a pool cube at all. And when I went to, but I thought it was just him, and I went to Moody, and they had ping pong tables, but they didn't have pool tables. And I wasn't a big pool player anyway, obviously, but I said, what, what's the deal? They said, well, some of our donors believe that pool is evil, and they'll stop giving if we have a pool table. Well, we laugh at that today, but that was pretty popular back years ago, and those kinds of things have been, uh, has infiltrated the church ever since uh, Peter saw the unclean animals come down in that sheet in Acts chapter 10. Uh, as long as we have laws and rules and regulations to tell us exactly what to do about everything, then, then it's pretty easy. It's pretty black and white. You either obey or you rebel, right? There's not a lot of, a lot of middle ground. But we have today, because the law has been abolished as our rule of faith, uh, because of that, um, we, are, uh, we have a lot of gray areas today, a lot of areas where the Lord gives us latitude uh, to do different things. Even good Christians might differ at times over various things. But that presents us with a problem. Uh, all Christians believe that certain things are sinful uh, and we're against them or against immorality and, and uh, murder and stealing and all sorts of things. But when it comes to other things such as amusements and participations in certain kinds of food or drinks, or even in medical treatments increasingly today, there are differences of opinion. Some Christians go uh, to one extreme or the other. Some Christians go to the extreme of, of uh, having a set of rules, almost like the Pharisees had. Remember the Pharisees? They weren't content with the law. They had to add their own, what Jesus called traditions, which later on were in the Talmud and the Mishnah, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of rules and regulations that govern every aspect of life. Uh, every, if you want to know where to be and when, when to be and how to be and what to do and what not to do, the, the Pharisees and those of that nature had a whole list for you. You didn't have to really think about it very much. And some today like to do that as well. We don't have any Pharisees today, but we do have people that live like Pharisees. Uh, they make up their own rules and they codify their traditions and bring them up to the level of Scripture and make them... Uh, a, a rite of passage, and if you don't follow the rules, uh, then you're either uh, you're, you're a liberal. But the other, on the other side, you have the other extreme that looks at those that have very stringent uh, ideas and convictions, and they call them liberal. And we have this give and take that's not so pleasant if we're not careful. Uh, the other extreme then is not the Pharisees, but those who would proclaim or, or flaunt their liberty. I used to listen quite a bit to a podcast. Uh, that felt that they, they, these people felt they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, and uh, they made a big deal about drinking alcohol. As a matter of fact, often they'd have their podcast uh, broadcast from a brewery, talk about the beers and drinks and whiskeys, the brands of whiskeys and so forth they liked. And they had all the liberty in Christ, they said, to do that. And anybody that didn't agree with them was a legalist. And so we have these extremes that have always been around and always been things we have to deal with. And so we're so happy that as we deal with these areas of conflicts and these areas of a difference of opinion, uh, that the Lord uh, has given us some scripture to help us in that regard. And that is found largely in Romans 14 
and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 that we'll be studying together in the days to come. The Lord has not left us defenseless. The Lord has not left us without instruction. The Lord has made very clear how He wants us to live. And as we look at these things, uh, I hope and trust that uh, they'll be very helpful and edifying to all of us. As we begin to look at this chapter 8, we'll spend two weeks on it, uh, there's two words that pop out that, that are going to be the subject of his discussions, and that, those are the words knowledge and the word love. And he's going to interlace those two, the knowledge and love, throughout the chapter. But we're going to start with knowledge this week, look at love next time, and see what he has to say about these things that we are so important to us. So we start with uh, background. I want to look at some background with you. Look at verse 1. Now concerning these things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Some of those at the Corinthian church believed that to restrict their liberty in Christ was wrong. And so they, would, they did whatever they wanted to do. And uh, they didn't want to be restricted by anybody else or anybody else's convictions. So they did their own thing. Uh, others were very stringent, and they didn't want to do certain things. So you can see the conflict, the same kind of conflicts we face today and always will until the Lord returns, uh, these, these kinds of issues over different convictions and preferences and ideas uh, that popped up. And so we need principles. We need God's Word to tell us how to navigate. Quite frankly, the vast majority of the conflicts that come with these kinds of issues will be resolved with a careful understanding and application of what we're going to look at in the next few weeks. Uh, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. What complicates it is, is our sinful nature that wants to do our own thing. And so the word is pretty clear. I hope you understand that as we go through uh, these passages together. He starts out in verse, eight, verse 1 of chapter 8 saying, Now concerning things. Now remember going back to chapter, one, chapter 7 verse 1 for just a moment. Uh, Paul gets around to answering some questions that these Corinthians had sent him in chapter 7. He had already talked about other things earlier, but in chapter 7 it says in verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And there's at least five, six different things that they wrote to Paul about and wanted answers for. In chapter 7, we've seen that they had questions about marriage, and he wanted to deal with those questions. In chapter uh, 7 verse 25 he says again now concerning virgins the next issue had to do with unmarried women and what to do with the unmarried women in their congregation in chapter 8 we see now concerning things sacrificed to idols so he's going to talk about this issue of idols and sacrificing, sacrificing to them and we'll look at that uh, today going back to chapter 12 verse 1 and I'm so anxious to get to chapter 12 now concerning spiritual gifts now he wants to talk about the giftedness of the church and what that means to us and how we live that out. Then in chapter 16, verse 1, he has one more issue now concerning the collection for the saints. He's talking about giving now. So these are the questions that, that were sent to Paul. He is going to answer them in these sections of Scripture, and we're looking forward to that. Now in chapter 8, going back to chapter 8, uh, we see that uh, the issue here was concerning buying and eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And this was the area that they had. Now, we don't have that issue, do we? Have you ever got up in the morning and said, I'm not sure if I should buy some meat at the idol temple today or not? 
I don't think anybody here has ever gotten up and said yes or no to that question. Uh, that's not our issues, but the principles are the same. And so we'll look at what they go through, apply the principles of these things to our own lives. But what we do need to know is that in, in the first century, in Corinth and other places, uh, you could buy meat at a couple of different places. You could buy it in the open markets, just the regular places. A farmer had some meat or whatever. Or you could buy meat down at the idol, the temples of the idols. At Corinth, they had 12 different uh, deities they worshipped. Aphrodite was uh, probably the most important of which, but, but there were others there as well. And each of these temples sacrificed animals. And each of those uh, sacrificial animals... Uh, had meat. Now the idols didn't tend to eat much, you know, but the priests did. And so the priest ate the food, but there was always a bunch left over. So if you wanted good meat at a good price, the best place to go was to the temples. The discount price was there, and the best cuts of meat was there. And so they would, uh, that was what was available at these various temples, and so that's where most of these people went and got their meat. They've been, do they've been doing it all their lives. And most of them didn't see much of a problem with that. So they resold this meat to the public. And one of the issues that's going to come up, and I want to kind of bring this to where we live, what if a cultic church, a church teaching a false doctrine, false gospel, has a bake cell here in Springfield, or has a garage cell here in Springfield? Should you go and to that bake cell? I mean, I know their cookies are great. Or should you go to their garage sale and buy some more junk that you can put in the garage until next time when you sell it at your garage sale? Uh, I know their junk is really good junk. Should you go there at all? Should you be seen in, in their parking lot? And if so, do you realize that if you bought their stuff, you are per, you're paying for their ministries, which are godless? Now, if you think about it that way, you start to understand some of the problems. Should we do that or shouldn't we do that? Should we buy meat sacrificed to idols or shouldn't we? And these are the things they're doing. And more than that, in verse 10, the bigger issue is should you go and eat at the temples? What if somebody sees you there, Paul's going to say, eating at the idols' uh, temples, eating that meat? And part of the problem is if you wanted to go out for a steak on Friday night in that day, that's where you went. That was the ancient restaurants, more or less. And they would go down there, and they've been doing it all their lives, eating a steak dinner on Friday nights like everybody in Springfield does. You try to go to a restaurant on Friday night? You better go where the old people go because, because the young people are out there in mass. And so, so they, were, they were happy with this. They liked going out to eat. And here was the best meat in town. And they've been doing it forever. So, so that's a big issue. But some thought it was wrong. Because you are supporting these temples, you're being seen at a place that worships idols, uh, others thought nothing of it. Some would point back, and you, you want to go with me for a moment, to Acts chapter 15. Remember in the, er, the first council of the church, when they had a, a conflict over these kinds of issues, the council of Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem came together with people from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, and they hammered out this issue, kind of very similar issue. And uh, when it was all said and done, James, the half-brother of Jesus, declared the verdict. And here it is in verse 20. He said, but we want to write to them. And he's talking now about Gentile Christians, because Jews and Gentiles were now flooding into the church. 
and he's writing to Gentile Christians. And he says, write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. So there's four things he said not to do, that they were to restrain from. One is fornication, everybody's on board with that. But the other three directly dealt with the Jewish church, or Jewish people. Look at verse 21. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. In other words, look, you Gentile Christians that are coming into the church, that's wonderful. But be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters who have always, who have been brought up under the law, and these kinds of issues are important to them. He didn't say they were right. He didn't say that, that these things that need to be perpetuated forever, but these were important things at that time that they should be sensitive about because of the Jewish brothers and sisters. And so as we go to Corinth, some of, the, some of them there could point back to that council ruling and say, well, look, it's very clear in that ruling, stay away from things sacrificed to idols. And so more or less, uh, the battle is on about that issue. So Paul's going to write about this. When we're done with chapter 8, mostly in 9 and 10 too, uh, we will have a clear teaching from the Word of God that should so that quite honestly applied should solve every kind of issue of like nature that comes up in the 21st century. The issue often is we say, well, my issue is different. I'm different. I, I have, I'm an exception to all rules. I don't think so. And so when you walk away from these three chapters and you're still conflicted, you're still at war with a brother or sister over things that are not taught directly in Scripture, know that you are wrong, not God. So I think you probably got that down pretty good, right? So let's move on to the second thing. We see the background. Going back to our passage, we're looking at knowledge. We'll look at love next time. They're interrelated. Love and knowledge is interrelated here. But nevertheless, knowledge is what we'll look at. If you just look through, the, through it here, you'll find in these first, uh, well, throughout the chapter, actually, that the word knowledge or know or knowing is found 11 times. Two different Greek words are used. One is oide, the other is gnosko. Uh, they have overlapping meanings, although oide sometimes can simply mean a, uh, more of a head knowledge information, where gnosko always in, may include that, but often includes uh, application and heart as well. But I think Paul is using them interrelated here, overlapping meaning, and he wants to talk to us about knowledge. And, and as he does, he wants to talk about three kinds of knowledge. The first is a dangerous knowledge, and that's what we'll start with here, a dangerous knowledge. He speaks of that concerning things sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Now that's a curious way of saying it, we all have knowledge. He can't possibly be saying that all of us know everything equally well, that we don't have different kinds of knowledge. He can't be saying that. But he must be saying that there's certain information, certain knowledge that all of us who are believers possess. So we all have that knowledge. But he says here, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. I like the way the ESV translates this. It's so much more colorful. The ESV says it this way. It says that, that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. That really says it well, doesn't it? 
Knowledge itself, in and of itself, just puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. Now be careful here. I'll never take one verse of scripture as the final word on any subject. There are some go to, to a passage like this over time and have carved out their whole spiritual life, their whole church life around these, these particular verses. I remember when I was going to Moody years ago, there was an a, a interesting phenomenon. One day we started hearing a bunch of noise outside. Moody was built in a big block, walls all around, you know, in the middle of Chicago. So it's a big square type of thing. And walking around the block of Moody was a whole bunch of college-age young people who were crying out in marching format, Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. And they marched around us for hours, going, Babylon was fallen. This was a group that went to a verse like this, and here's what they thought. They thought all knowledge was wrong. They thought only loved mattered. And that what was wrong at Moody is that we were teaching the scriptures. We had professors proclaiming the word of God, teaching the word of God, students soaking up the word of God, and that was wrong. And we were Babylon, and we should fall down just like Joshua circled Jericho, and the walls fell down, so they were circling Moody and having the walls fall down, but it didn't work out so well for them. They got arrested. Uh, I, I do remember apparently a few of them got inside the building, and one of them was just this one, one young gal, just a pretty little gal, and uh, she was in there, and maybe that's how she got in, because she looked like she was not going to cause any damage. But she was in there, and I, for some reason I saw her, I don't know why, but she was, I never saw anybody like this before. She had this glare in her eyes, and she repeated over and over and over, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Smiling, eyes in a trance, and I thought, this is weird. Something's, something's seriously wrong with this little girl. And that whole group was called the church and went on to be a rather powerful cult at the time and it's still in existence to some degree today. The problem is they thought all knowledge was wrong. Is that what Paul's teaching? If all knowledge is wrong, then why did Paul teach? <laughs> if all knowledge is wrong, why did, why did the apostles write the epistles? What is all this teaching about? If, if knowledge is wrong, why did Jesus send his apostles out to teach his word? Why do we have the scriptures? Why don't we just stand around or sit around in a glaze, with eyes glazing out there and just talk about love? Oh, I love you. Oh, you're just so lovely. And just do that. And that's what this group wanted to do. But they didn't do it very well. It didn't last very long. And they didn't understand what scripture was teaching. No, the scriptures are not saying that all knowledge is wrong. It's saying the wrong kind of knowledge is wrong. There's a dangerous kind of knowledge, and that is what he wants to talk about. You see, knowledge without love is harsh and cruel. Love without knowledge is naive and gullible, and in the end is more damaging than hate. I was thinking this week concerning that of a proverb. Listen to this, parents. Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds the rod hates his son. Well, if you didn't know that, you'd say, well, I'm just going to love that kid and, until he just, he's, he just walks perfectly. It's not going to work. You see, Scripture says that our children are born in sin, and one of the great instruments that God uses to shape them in his direction is parents. 
And, parent, and one of the ways that parents shape their children is through the word of God and through the discipline of those children as well as love. All those ingredients are necessary. And so if you have the wrong kind of knowledge, if you think, I'm just going to love them, but I'm never going to discipline you, I, I, I got a thing for you. You hate your child. I didn't say that. God did. You hate him. You hate her because you don't love them enough to do the hard thing and discipline them. And so we have to put all that together. As Paul goes on in verse 2, uh, and uh, he says this, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. So he's talking here about these people who are puffed up. You know, another way of, of saying that is that they're, they're windbags. Have you ever heard of a windbag? You ever know anybody like that? You know? They're windbags because uh, they think they know something, but they do not love as they should love. You see, love, by its very definition, requires involvement with people. Now, that, that, is, that isn't real profound, is it? Uh, you know, I am so happy for the modern technology the Lord has given us, especially the, in recent times when we had uh, the pandemic issues and we're able to do the live streams and all the things that have come along uh, in better ways in the last couple of years. Uh, right now, I think, if I'm not, I don't want to overspeak, Edwin, but right now, each week we have several hundred units, a couple hundred units listening to our morning broadcast, which if we have two or three people per unit, we're talking four or five hundred people are listening to Sunday morning here. Doesn't mean they're listening right now. Most of them are probably in bed. But, but all around the world, people are listening. Isn't that great technology? And, and churches like ours that are preaching the word everywhere are having that opportunity in ways we've never had before. That's great. That's wonderful. Let me tell you what it's not made for. For you to stay home in bed, sit on your couch with a cup of coffee, pop your feet up on the, on the, on the sofa with, uh, in your jammies, and listen to the word being preached every Sunday morning and say, I've been to church. Now, technology for, of that type for the sick, for the shut-ins, for the travelers, for those that can't be here, is marvelous, wonderful. But for all the rest, it's, that's not what it's about because you cannot love one another if you're not here, if you're not involved with the body. You know, we don't, we don't have any ghosts here to love, you know. We have people. We come together as a body. How do you stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you're not even here? And so we have love is never in isolation. It's always reaching out. And so one application I'd give you just in quick, quickly is look. Look around you. Look into your life. Look into the people around you. And ask yourself this week, who can I reach out to? Who can I love? Who can I encourage? Who can I help? Who can I pray for? How important that is that we do exactly that. So Paul goes on here. He says uh, concerning this puffing up and so forth. You know, if we have a, a, being puffed up is like a balloon. You can blow, blow a balloon up, but it's just full of air. If you build a house, you've got something solid. And that's the contrast that he has. Warren Wiersbe said this in a very nice way. He said, knowledge must be mixed with love, otherwise the saints will end up with big heads instead of enlarged hearts. A famous preacher used to say, some Christians grow, others just swell. Let me say it more crassly. Don't be a Christian with a fat head. Be a Christian with a big heart. We don't need fat-headed Christians, whatever that means. 
We need Christians with big hearts, people that have the proper knowledge of God and are, are giving that knowledge out in love to one another. That's what Paul's saying here. And so in verse 2, when he talks about this, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know, he is talking then about the reality of all this. Now, if your knowledge does not, here, here's the takeaway from this section, if your knowledge does not change your attitude toward others, if your biblical knowledge, your theological knowledge, your understanding of Scripture does not widen your love for one another, then it's not doing its job. You're a fat-headed Christian. Write that in your Bible somewhere. You need to be a big-hearted Christian. Let me talk secondly about a necessary knowledge in verse 3, a necessary knowledge. Knowledge unbalanced by love can become dangerous. On the other hand, certain kinds of knowledge we must not be without. And one of those types is to know God. Look at verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. 1 John 4, 7, and 8, I'm not going to read for sake of time, but 1 John 4, 7, and 8, it tells us that if, if we love God, don't, don't say we love God if we don't love one another. And so he was saying much the same thing. The word known here, though, if anyone loves God, he's turned it around, says he is known by him. The evidence that we are known by God is love. Now, be careful. He is not saying you are saved by love. We come to Christ on the basis of His grace received by faith. But an evidence of our salvation, of knowing God, should be that we love one another. Have you ever gone somewhere and uh, you walk in a room and somebody there knows you by name and you're surprised? And you're, yeah, you're kind of puffed up at that. And especially if it's somebody important. You ever had that happen? You walk in the room and somebody of prominence uh, sees you and says, oh, there's so-and-so. And for a few moments, hmm, maybe I'm important. Ha! Huh. Yeah, doesn't last very long, but and it, it's not going to mean anything in your, in your life. Big deal. Somebody knows who you are. I'm going I'm to say there's, there's one caveat to that. If God knows who you are, oh, that's different. You see what he says here? That you're known by him? What an amazing thing to consider, if we think about it for a moment, that we who know Christ are known, this is the, the word that uh, speaking of relationship, that we are known by Almighty God. And you know what? He, he knows you and He loves you no matter how insignificant you might think you are in the same way as He knows and He loves very prominent people in Christianity. Isn't that something to consider? That God cares for us, that God knows and loves us, that's a knowledge you ought to have. That's a knowledge that will change your life. Secondly, he wants to talk about to know who God is. God knows us. Verses 4 to 6, he wants to talk about that we need to know who God is. He says in verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Let me stop there for a moment. In verses 4 and 5, he's returning to his subject. And he's, he's going to talk about these spirits, these idols, these so-called gods. In chapter 10, he's going to say, the idols are nothing, of course, but there are spirits, there are, there are demonic spirits behind these idols, and he don't want to be involved with them. We'll get to that in chapter 10, but we'll let it go for now. But these Greeks believed in multiple gods, 
And so how important it is that they know that there's only one God and there's not a multitude of gods. Did you know in many places around the world where the missionary uh, message goes out, the gospel goes out, that many people receive Christ, supposedly, and yet keep their old deities? They're worshiping God and worshiping Hindu, Hindu gods. They're worshiping God and they're worshiping the Buddhist system. They're worshiping God and their, and their animistic gods at the same time. How important to know you can't do that. That there's only one God. And you can't combine him with other gods. That's again one of the takeaways from this great passage. They need to know that God exists. We live right now in a world of animism. I don't know if have you noticed that. When's the last time you saw on TV or, or a film anything remotely close to the biblical teaching about Jesus Christ and God and about Christians who are truly faithful to him. You don't see it anywhere. But from science fiction to kids' movies, you see animism everywhere. The trees, the rocks, the fields, everything's sacred. There, there's spirits in everything. And, and many times our young people are being raised to believe that almost. And that's what's being prog- propagated out there all the time. But nothing about the true God. That was going on in that day too. But in verse 6, he moves to the positive and he gives us something in a, almost a credo type fashion. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. What he wants us to know then, and this is so valuable, one of the most important scriptures and all the word of God on, on just on a credo fashion of who God is I want you to note first of all concerning God what does he say about God he is the one God he is the father now recall being God being called father was not common in the Old Testament that's not an Old Testament thing you might find it a few times but very few that came with Jesus When Jesus walked the earth, he referred to God as his father every single time he referenced him except one. And that was on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is that important? Because there's a great deal of difference between the love of a father and and just just a God, as great as God is. It, It makes God personal. It makes us realize that he has a father with a father's heart. Now, I know there's no father in here who has got it together, who's perfect. All you got to do is ask your grown children a little later on, and you'll find that out, right? None of us put it together. None of us ever will. But take the greatest father in the room here, wipe out all the sinful aspects, and add to him the infinite holiness and goodness and love of perfection, and now you're seeing the true father. And we need to know him that way. Don't, don't understand God through your experience of a father. Understand God through the, through the teaching of scripture that says here's what he is like. And he's our father. And we have a relationship, a loving, gracious relationship with our father. Secondly, it tells us he's the source of all things. He's the creator of everything. Thirdly, he is the reason for our existence. He is the only reason that we are here. Somerset Marm, who was a a famous writer of the past and an atheist, said this toward the end of his life, and I thought it was very good, and it's very right. If if one puts aside the existence of God and the survival after life as too doubtful, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. 
if death ends all, if, if I have neither to hope for, nor for good, nor fear evil, I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how are the circumstances that I must conduct myself? Now, now the answer is plain, Marm said, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. He's exactly right. If there is no Father God, life has no meaning. It has no purpose. And that's what Paul is saying here about the Lord here in verse 6. He says, we exist for him, for him. Then he moves on to talk about Christ. And look what he says about, about the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he's Lord. He's unique. He is over all things. He is the instrument of creation, and he is our redeemer. We live through him. Once again, without Christ, uh, we have nothing. Sartre wrote his famous ugly novel called Nausea. And came, his main character came to the end of his life, and he said this, It was true, I had always realized it, I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance, I existed like a stone or a plant or a, or a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are, listen, we are eating, we're drinking to preserve our precious existence, and there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existence. Absolutely right. If there's no Father God, if there's no Lord Jesus Christ. There's no reason to be here, folks, except for that. That's what Paul is reminding them of as he writes uh, these wonderful words. Now, closing out this section, verse 7, there's, there's also an applied knowledge. Verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to an idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Here's what he's saying here, that if, you're, if your knowledge does not lead you to freedom, then you'll live in bondage to that which is not true. The reason we teach the Word of God as diligently as we can here is to set us free from the worldviews and the ideologies that are false. Because until you're set free from that, you're in bondage to everything in this world but God. And we'll pick up on that even more later on. And so we see that knowledge is important, but only a certain kind of knowledge is the knowledge of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes a difference in how we live. John Piper, in one of his books, wrote a very interesting thing. He, he was talking about the sun being the center of our solar system, and everything revolves around it, and, and it controls everything. And, and he says that's what Christ is like in the life of the Christian. And so he, he writes this, and it's worth reading. He says, so it is with the supremacy of Christ in your life. All the planets of your life, your sexuality and desires, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and feeling, all the planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and the gravity and the blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. If he ceases to be bright and blazing and satisfying beauty in our lives, at the center of our lives, 
our lives fly into confusion. A hundred different things are out of control and ultimately we are headed to destruction. I think that's great. He's absolutely right. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Well, you guys are all fragmented over these issues that have divided the church and are causing all sorts of problems. Let me tell you something. What matters is the centrality of the supremacy of Christ. And if you live as with Christ at the supreme core of your being, all these other things come into orbit. And if he's not there, it all flies away into destruction. And so this passage of scripture that deals with uh, some very specific issues of the time speaks to our hearts today. I trust it spoke to yours. Father, we come to you now thanking you for your word and thanking you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that we can read these ancient words and, and gain truth and strength and knowledge that leads to love. In Jesus' name, amen.